Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm Aaron Mack. Hey everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We are recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, August 6th. On today's show, we'll talk about the protests in Hong Kong and how the Chinese government is using cyber warfare to foil the efforts of activists. To learn more about the specifics of those attacks, I'll talk to Nick Frisch, a journalist who's been following the protests closely. After the interview, my colleague Shannon Paulus will join me for Don't Close My Tabs, where we'll talk about the best things we saw on the web this week. That's all coming up on If Then. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. The protests in Hong Kong have been raging for about two months now. They started as a response to a piece of legislation that would allow Hong Kong residents to be extradited to China for trial. That bill has been tabled for now, but protests have continued to escalate. On Monday, thousands of Hong Kong residents participated in demonstrations. It disrupted transportation across the city and resulted in more than 200 flights being canceled. While riot police clash with protesters in the streets, the Chinese government is waging a cyber war behind the scenes to foil the efforts of activists, who have been using platforms like Facebook and the encrypted messaging app Telegram to coordinate the protest. Joining us with the details of those cyber attacks is Nick Frisch, a fellow at Yale's Information Society Project and a scholar of media and technology in the Chinese-speaking world. He was recently at Hong Kong University as a fellow at the Journalism and Media Studies Center. Nick, thanks for joining us. Good to be with you. Uh, Can you first give us sort of a brief overview of why these protests are happening now? The root of the protests goes back to the handover of Hong Kong from British control to Chinese sovereignty in 1997. Hong Kong was a British colony with British-style institutions, uh, free press, and a certain level of representative government through a local legislature. And the promise from Beijing was that these institutions would be maintained for 50 years without change, despite being handed over to the sovereignty of the People's Republic of China in 1997. Ever since then, Hong Kongers have worried about the erosion of those liberties, and there have been a series of protests over the years against the apparent encroachment on those liberties through various legal means that the treaty agreement for the handover of Hong Kong did not anticipate. The most recent was the attempted passing of an extradition law which would have given the mainland government the right to request the extradition of criminal suspects from Hong Kong to the mainland Chinese judicial system, which many Hong Kongers do not trust. That was the original motivation for these protests, which began in June, but they have built and the grievances have widened as the government refused to withdraw the bill and a number of other complaints that Hong Kongers have had about the apparent erosion of their freedoms have boiled over. So what does the social media landscape look like in Hong Kong? Uh, Is there any censorship as there is in mainland China? 
One of the aspects of the 1997 handover agreement called One Country, Two Systems is that Hong Kong would preserve a lot of its financial and legal framework inherited from the British. A result of that in the digital age has been that although Hong Kong is legally part of Chinese territory, its internet is much more similar to what we would think of in the West. People use Google, people use Facebook, people use Instagram, people use uh, WhatsApp, and you go across the border into China and it's a completely different cyber world. In China, as people well know, there is a firewall, there's extensive censorship and social control online. So Hong Kong is in many ways a front line between the Great Firewall and the American and European uh, internet world. So how have the protesters been using social media to coordinate and spread their message? The first big test of social media for the coordination of protests was in 2014, when protesters extensively used WhatsApp and Facebook to organize what was called the Umbrella Movement. This was a protest against the feeling among many Hong Kongers that Beijing had broken a promise to allow full voting for the chief executive of Hong Kong. Recently, the new round of protests has preferred to use Telegram, the app run out of Berlin. Uh, Telegram is preferred because it offers uh, end-to-end encryption features and it can be harder for the authorities to track down people involved through, uh, as compared to normal social network sites. So it's you, mostly protesters are using Western social media sites. Uh, Chinese social media like Weibo and WeChat, are those in the picture at all? Weibo and WeChat are not popular among protest groups. There is a feeling that if you use those apps or if you even have them on your phone, You don't know what's going to happen to the data. If it goes back to China, that gives authorities in China and potentially authorities in Hong Kong a window into who is participating in the protests. A major concern that protesters have is being tracked down by police after the protests are over and being charged with various offenses under Hong Kong criminal law that can be quite vague, like incitement. So there is a premium put this time around on privacy and anonymity that we didn't see as much in the 2014 protests. So can you now speak to how Beijing is trying to suppress the protest movement using cyber attacks and those sorts of tactics? So in China, there is a large and often used toolbox for achieving what they call social stability. There's no single tool that is dominant. It is a combination of methods. These have included uh, distributed denial of service attacks, DDoS attacks on platforms that protesters are using. Uh, Denial of service attack is a common and relatively inexpensive type of cyber attack. It doesn't require any special infiltration It relies instead on overwhelming a server with requests. In the case of Telegram, there were many requests which came from mainland China, pinging Telegram servers, which overwhelmed it. 
and made it difficult to distinguish between the legitimate user requests and the junk requests. There's also the use of misinformation and incitement. Uh, there is always a challenge on these platforms of figuring out who you're talking to, what source their information is. There's always an interest in portraying the protests as violent and disruptive. Uh, on occasion, when some protesters do get a little bit emotional or engage in some uh, acts which are seen as violent or destructive, you can be sure that the mainland propaganda authorities are using those images and making sure those images spread as widely as possible, including things that are portrayed out of context. So there's always an attempt to advance the narrative that runs against the protesters to delegitimize them and also to portray the authorities as not to blame. And is it clear that these attacks are coming from the Chinese government? It is common for the Chinese government, like many other governments that use cyber weapons to try to have deniability and a lack of attribution to the attacks. However, the best evidence that's available and the uh, evidence that has come out of Telegram itself suggests that the scale and intensity and the fact that it was originating from China it does point to a state-sponsored or a state-backed attack. And how the protesters tried to adapt to these attacks? I mean, are they just using other platforms when this happens? There are various countermeasures that protesters have used. There are systems for shouting in crowds, for conveying messages. Uh, people do switch between Telegram, Signal, WhatsApp, and other services People still do use Facebook and Facebook Messenger, although not as much as before. Most protesters in the streets will have a number of these apps on their phones, and they will use them uh, alternating depending on the situation. And you mentioned this before, but another facet of the cyber war is misinformation and sort of controlling the direction of conversations online. Uh, so what kinds of misinformation uh, is being spread? Is it like doctored photos or false reports? Um, what form do they usually take? It's important to note that this is a major priority for the party state, uh, shaping propaganda, shaping narratives, making sure that the party's priorities are represented in a positive light and that people who are seen as against the party's agenda are represented in a negative light. There are doctored photos. There are photos taken out of context. There are what we would call in America fake news items that circulate. Uh, there's also a question of proportion. Often some protesters may uh, let their emotions get ahead of them and do things that they might later regret. Uh, that creates a very bad image, you know, breaking into a police station or throwing a Molotov cocktail or something like that. All the evidence suggests that this is a very small number of people, but those instances are taken and shown as representative of the entire protest movement. And a number of uh, fact-checking and verified information, telegram channels and other social media groups have sprung up 
to try and sort the fact from the fiction and make sure that protesters have accurate information. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more from Nick Frisch, a fellow at Yale's Information Society Project. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So it it seems like some of the narratives that Beijing is trying to disseminate here through misinformation and other means are that the protests are more violent than they actually are, that the authorities are acting um, unimpeachably. Is there anything else that the they want to kind of get out there in terms of narrative? The point of view from Beijing, and there's every reason to believe that they mean it when they say it, is that Hong Kong is too tolerant of its latitude, enjoying freedoms that do not exist on mainland China, that the young people and the others who are protesting are abusing or misusing their freedoms, and that Hong Kong is somehow fundamentally ungrateful and chaotic and not a good participant in the broader Chinese family that, from the point of view of Beijing, Hong Kong was welcomed back into in 1997. The notion of foreign interference is a recurring theme when domestic troubles seem to undermine stability for China. And the modern version of this in the social media age has been taking stills of foreigners who are walking around the protests. Sometimes it's not clear how much they're participating, but those images are then used to justify a narrative of sinister foreign forces of black hands reaching from outside China. And that is a narrative that gets support from the top, as we saw when the spokeswoman of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs specifically said that there are many American faces, that's a direct quote from her, uh, that can be seen among the protesters. How is this suppression effort playing out on Facebook in particular? Uh, You mentioned that protesters were using Facebook for some of their um, communications. One of the issues with Facebook is how its terms of service flagging system can be used to take down certain pages. And the difficulty that Facebook has had all over the world in adjudicating complicated competing claims between different parties who claim that certain content or a certain group violates uh, terms of service, community standards. In 2014, there was a problem of Facebook groups which had become quite influential or systemically important for the protests being barraged with community standards user complaints from individuals who had Facebook accounts and were maybe uh, working from Hong Kong but acting to advance Beijing's agenda. 
if a certain number of complaints was lodged, it was believed that the group would be automatically shut down pending further review. And this gave opponents of the group a tool to shut down systemically important Facebook groups at critical moments during the protest. Uh, Telegram has not completely evaded this problem. There have been instances where there have been complaints against certain groups, uh, but overall, it's not as much of an issue as with Facebook. So it sounds like this has happened before, uh, before these protests. I mean, has Facebook done anything to try to stop this manipulation of its platform? Can it do anything during these uh, protest situations? Facebook has faced these kinds of problems all around the world. And often there is a complicated mix of local laws, local sensitivities, and very complicated linguistic and cultural standards, which are quite difficult for someone sitting in Facebook headquarters to parse. And they have gotten much better at it over the last few years in terms of deciding what kind of content is truly beyond the pale and what kind of content constitutes legitimate political speech. So I have not heard of any major issues with Facebook this time around. However, it has just simply become a less important platform for the protests compared to before. Do you think that these cyber war tactics tangibly affect what happens in the streets during the protests? Do you think there's a pretty obvious divide between online and on the ground, or do they overlap? One is definitely able to see a correlation between the physical spaces of the protests and the groups that are converging online. Many of the protest groups used to organize the protests and strikes over the weekend and yesterday on Monday were geographically specific. You would have a general group for a particular area where a protest was planned, and then you would have smaller subgroups for particular professions that were planning to go on strike, accountants, airline workers, uh, medical workers, groups like that. So there is a reflection of what's happening in real life online. There's also a reflection of what's happening online in real life. One of the most important forums for the protests is not well known outside Hong Kong. It's called LIHKG, and it functions a bit like Reddit. It has its own app, and it's very popular with the protesters. And there are what they call keyboard warriors that are active online trying to keep the digital spaces functioning trying to keep keep it out misinformation, trying to keep uh, protesters organized and aligned. And they are now going into the real world and giving press conferences uh, in their yellow helmets and their signature black shirts. So you're seeing groups that are coalescing online having an effect in real life. And that is a reason why the authorities, both the local authorities in Hong Kong and the authorities acknowledged and unacknowledged uh, conducting cyber operations for mainland China have taken such an intense interest in these online spaces because it's an area of communication that is critical to disrupt if you want to tamp down or confuse the protests. One of the challenges of these digital spaces is that you don't always know who you're talking with or whether the information you're getting is reliable. 
And there are constantly rumors of people on these platforms spreading misinformation about very specific aspects of the protests, including which street to go down, uh, where the police are moving, and other smaller logistical details of the protests. Um, it's often very difficult to track down the precise nature of who's sending this information, whether it's malicious or simply a misinformed citizen, but it is a known tactic of the propaganda and opinion guidance authorities in mainland China, not simply to push their own narrative, but also to create noise and distraction and additional confusion. And in that way, you can see impulses from the authorities in the mainland that do have parallels with the kinds of divisions that the Russians were trying to inflame over social media as they spread confusion before the 2016 elections. Okay, we're going to take another break, and then we'll continue our conversation with Nick Frisch. So why is Beijing trying to intervene in the protests in the digital realm as opposed to just sending the military there or something to tamp it down physically? A physical intervention in Hong Kong of the type that would normally be an option available to the authorities elsewhere in mainland China would be an extremely expensive and escalating step. Because Hong Kong is part of Chinese territory, but has in many ways the functions of a de facto city-state. It has its own currency, it has its own police force, it has its own courts, it has a legal and financial system that interfaces very easily with New York and London and Singapore. There are many people from China, including top leaders and their families, who have investments in Hong Kong property. There are also many state-run and state-backed enterprises in China which are listed on the Hong Kong stock market. The consequences of a deployment of the Chinese army in Hong Kong would be extremely unpredictable and damaging. It's not to say that it would never be considered if they felt they had no other option, but the preference is to leave the overt policing, uh, the physical world policing, to the local authorities. And cyber is an area where the uh, authorities on the mainland or groups that they are backing can intervene uh, with much more deniability, with less attribution, and arguably be more effective because they haven't gone the step of intervening with force in the physical world. And you expect to see a similar cyber war phenomenon uh, during the Taiwan elections this fall. Uh, What are you going to be looking for as we get closer to election day there? The expectation in Taiwan is a more coordinated effort similar to what the United States saw from Russia before 2016 and leading up to the 2016 election. There is well-documented evidence of uh, private companies in China likely acting with state backing and coordination, using Facebook and other social media 
to create narratives around favored candidates in uh, the last round of elections in Taiwan. There is also a documented effort to shape media narratives through a combination of incentives, indirect ownership, and incentivizing uh, companies that are invested in mainland China to behave in a certain way with the media outlets that they own in Taiwan. It is also possible that you'll see more overt efforts at interference with the social media platforms and other cyber space in Taiwan. But because Taiwanese are very attached to their democratic system and many are suspicious of mainland China's strategic intentions, it is probably a more strategic move to have deniable and not attributable methods of elevating its favored candidates and denigrating its less favored candidates. Nick, thanks for chatting with us. Cool. Thanks, Aaron. Okay, we're going to take one final break, and then my colleague Shannon Paulus will join me for this week's edition of Don't Close My Tabs, where we'll talk about the best things we saw on the web this week. Okay, it's time for Don't Close My Tabs. And joining me now is my colleague, Shannon Paulus. She'll be hosting the show next week. Hey, Shannon. Hey, Aaron. So what's your tab this week? Um, my tab is by former, if then, host April Glazer, a tech reporter at Slate. And it's a story that she wrote on Sunday called 8chan is a normal part of mass shootings now. So 8chan is the place where the mass shooter who killed people in uh, the Walmart in El Paso uh, last Saturday. Um, before he committed his crime, he uploaded this anti-immigrant like four-page manifesto to 8chan um, with the instructions to spread it around. And April in this piece charts how this is the third time that someone has done this before committing a mass shooting. And we should say that 8chan currently, as we're taping this, um, seems to be offline. The internet providers that host it and keep it up are kind of shuffling around and uh, cutting off service. So it's not really clear what the message board's future is. Right. Yeah. As April points out, 8chan is supposed to be sort of a place where even more gruesome things that can't find a home on 4chan, which is already a horrible place. Um, that's where that content goes. So it's just just seems like we're going downhill really quickly with these uh, these forums. Right. And we should say that 4chan is a gruesome place in part because um, it's had direct influence from Stormfront, which is a message board created by the KKK trying to go in and uh, quote unquote red pill people into uh, adopting white supremacist ideas. Yeah, it's just uh, not a pleasant corner of the internet to look around. So it's unclear kind of what we should do or what anyone should do about these forums, but I think that uh, it's good to understand the role they're playing in these mass shootings. Um, and so April's piece is really interesting, and you should check it out if you haven't already. Um, Aaron, what's your tab? My tab this week is a New York Times piece from Friday that I found while doing research for uh, this episode's interview. It's titled, Fueling the Hong Kong Protests, A World of Pop Culture Memes. 
and the piece is basically a taxonomy of all the social media videos and artwork that people have created to support the protests. Um, Hong Kong has always served this sort of border between the East and the West, and the memes draw from the popular cultures of both hemispheres. And when you scroll through everything in the piece, you see that it's this mishmash of Tarantino, Broadway musicals, uh, The Hunger Games, Bruce Lee, Christian hymns, John Lennon, um, anime. It's hard to explain, but as someone who grew up going to Hong Kong a lot to see family, I feel like it's a really good distillation of Hong Kong culture. Uh, and it's weird to talk about protest art in this way because, you know, the stakes are so high and so serious, but the pieces are really beautiful. It's clear that a lot of time and care went into this, uh, especially the videos, and the marshalling of cultural references for the cause definitely took a lot of thought. So I would highly recommend checking out the piece and then checking out the YouTube accounts and social media accounts where this art is being spread. Can you describe one of the memes? Yeah, so there's one meme that is, uh, it's basically an animation of uh, one of the protests. Um, as the New York Times points out, it's very similar to the opening credits of uh, Cowboy Bebop, which is this anime about um, space cowboys, basically, in this lawless kind of universe. And it just takes that and uses the the lettering and a lot of the uh, the kind of side-sliding animations to, um, to talk about what's going on in Hong Kong right now. It's... Uh, really eye-catching and obviously serving a very important purpose. How do the memes differ from um, the memes that folks in the States might have seen on Twitter and online? Yeah, that's the thing. Um, It's weird, but I've been a little underwhelmed, I guess is the word, by art that's been created in the Trump era in the U.S. Um, Something about this art just seems so well put together and so uh, meticulous and refined. Um, a lot of the, the things that they're saying, a lot of the cultural references have these double meanings. And it just seems like there's been a lot of care put into, um, especially the videos. Uh, looking at this art really gives you a lot of context and uh, I think gives you a sense of what the protest means to these people in a way that's uh, very visceral. Um, so definitely go check out the piece and check out the art. All right, that's our show. You can email us at ifthen at slate.com. Send us your tech questions, show and guest suggestions, or just say hi. You can also follow me on Twitter. I'm at Aaron T. Mack. Thanks again to our guest, Nick Frisch. And thanks to everyone who has left us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. We really appreciate your time. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. If you want more of Slate's tech coverage, sign up for the Future Tense newsletter. Every week you'll get news and commentary on how tech advances are changing the world in ways small and large. Sign up at slate.com slash future news. Our producer is Cameron Drews. Thanks also to Melissa Kaplan, who engineered for us in D.C. today. We'll see you next week.